Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Avnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Michael. Huzzah. A John Travolta story. A John Travolta joint. Actually, it would be a Nora Nor Ephron joint. Starring John Travolta. A vehicle <laughs> that William Hurt drives with John Travolta <laughs> in the backseat. Yes, hello. Welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my, my friend and co-host Julio. Julio, it's been about a year since we last saw John Travolta. Or has it been two years? No. Because we... Uh, when was the summer of Travolta? I don't know, but uh, we were I know last... we had Wild Hogs. I was, okay, yeah. I was going to say. Oh, you don't, you're not counting. I was going to circle it back around. <laughs> it's, like it's, been, it's been considerable time since we spent, uh, you know... Pleasurable time. Eight days a week with Mr. Travolta. <laughs> yes. And then we did uh, briefly run into him, you know, kind of when you run into a friend at the mall or the airport or something. Probably a more embarrassing scenario than that. With with wild hogs. Yes, that is also true. We ran into him coming out of Spencer's Gifts <laughs> with wild hogs. Uh, but we're here with our buddy John once again, going back to the year 1996, Christmas Day of 1996, with... Uh, Nora Ephron's Michael. I don't know. Would you call this a comedy drama? Uh, a, a supernatural comedy drama? A whimsical drama? supernatural comedy drama. I mean, does it ha- fantasy film is how it's described here. It's certainly not a documentary. No. No. Angels do not exist no matter how hard uh, Nora Ephron wants me to believe. Or uh, I'm just looking at the poster right now. I was going to say where Bob Hoskins and his tabloid. He has a massive and credit. It's just like <laughs> the and is bigger than his name. Yeah, and I forgot the tagline was he's an angel, not a saint. Because John Travolta in all his glory in this his glorious quaffed hair, his uh sausage tits and his spare tire belly. We only get the one shot of him in his boxers, but it it's, it's worth enough. it's worth the wait. And his incessant smoking and drinking and uh high intake of sugar. He's definitely not what we would come to think of an angel. Uh, but before we get into this movie bit by bit and discuss this, first of all, Randy Newman plays us in. <laughs> so we'll be very excited to splice in some Randy Newman clips <laughs> for this episode. If this is your first time listening to Contrarians, we appreciate your listen. Uh, to give you a quick rundown of what you can expect here, uh, we like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. That's what we like to say. Find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that is highly rated. As they like to say, in some cases, certified fresh. Uh, take it down a few pegs, make a case for, uh, you know, why it shouldn't be that high in praise. And then on the other side of the coin, find a movie 
typically between 40% and below. Um, with this one, it's a bit higher than usual. We usually aim for 30% and below. Uh, a rotten film and then make a case for the good in it. Uh, being that Michael here is 38%, we'll be uh, making a case for its positive merit in the first portion. If you want to know how we really feel about this little ditty, just hang around for the second half of the podcast entitled Real Talk, where we discuss how we really feel. This is the third Noraefra movie we've done, and it's all three of them have been rotten. You would think that Nora Ephron was not a successful filmmaker. <laughs> I guess was You've Got Mail well-received? No, it made a lot of money. I mean, Julia and Julia was nominated for an Oscar, but that was Meryl Streep, right? Got nominated for that? Yes. And then Sleep- Sleepless in Seattle. I know a lot of people like that movie. So- if you have a heart, yes. <laughs> So we're just, we're covering the B-sides here. <laughs> That's true. When well, you think Nora Ephron, you do not think Michael. Mixed uh, nuts. Mixed nuts. <laughs> and certainly not bewitched. Um, being that this is a 38 percenter means the critics weren't exactly uh, jumping head over heels for this. What, what were they saying about Michael? Uh, not very nice things, but also the critics didn't even show up. Is the thing, Michael, I mean, by 98. 96. By 96. Run Tomatoes was up and running. We've done movies that are even earlier than that, and there's a gazillion reviews. Mm-hmm. This is just like a handful of reviews. Uh, thankfully, I was able to pull three quotes on each side. So here, Contreras Corner, we'll do the rotten side, starting with Frank Okiang from Movie Eye, who says, A cloying and cloudy romantic comedy in which Travolta dons angelic wings. Michael is innocuously whimsical, but wasteful. Okay. Michael DeQuina from TheMovieReport.com says, not much in the way of laughs or anything else. (laughs) And finally, Emmanuel Levy from Variety says, Travolta's charismatic presence is the only positive element in Nora Ephron's flawed romantic fable marred by rough narrative spots and scattered direction, again showing that Ephron lacks the most basic technical skills. Jesus. He went all out against Nora Ephron. Deep in. Yeah, and... uh... Completely ignoring Sparky the dog and uh, <laughs> Robert Pastorelli. Robert Pastorelli making his triumphant, triumphant return. return to the Contrarians. Uh, retroactively, he was also in Be Cool. Much smaller role. Yeah, the less said about that movie, the better. <laughs> Michael begins, and we later find out in Iowa, but just a really rural country town out there. We see an old woman. And a silhouette, an unmistakable silhouette of John Travolta going into a local bank. Do you think that we recognize Travolta because we spent so much time with him uh, a couple of years ago? I'd like to think if I saw him in person, a stranger on the bus type, (laughs) he would still just exude that uh, presence as he does here just from a silhouette shot. You'd smell the cookies? Yes, exactly. They go into a bank, they come out really quick, and then just kind of out of nowhere, a storm picks up and knocks this bank over. It's a strange way to set the table. Ominous. Uh, But we're quickly thrown over to Frank Quinlan, played by William Hurt, looking like every ethics professor ever in this movie. (laughs) Well, the hottest ethics professor that you could have had. Unfortunately, there's no shot of him slowly taking his glasses off and then doing the... (laughs) And then, you know, pulling out a handkerchief and wiping them off. His second is uh, the aforementioned Robert Pastorelli playing Huey Driscoll. Uh, They work for not the National Enquirer. The National Mirror. Okay, the National Mirror, which is the National Enquirer. (laughs) It's a uh, tabloid that's sold, you know, if you're waiting 
in line at the checkout counter at the grocery store. It's going to be right there with Bat Boy and Elvis Lives. Bad Boy and who really killed JFK. There you go. And, you know, Regis Philbin's tawdry love affair. and Just like really nasty photographs of celebrities claiming Mm -hmm. that they're dying. Yeah. Oh, constantly. Yeah. They're... What are they trying to do? It, it was when they came out because it's like a Christmas set. It looks like they're taking Christmas pictures of some sort. And that's how I remembered it was a Christmas Day movie. And I guess this is <laughs> the one reference to Christmas. They're trying to basically do a photo shoot for the, the new cover story. Right, pretending that they found elves. Yeah. Right? yeah, is, yeah, that, yeah. is that it? That's why not? Uh, we find out quickly the editor in chief of the National Mirror is Bob Hoskins. Super Mario himself. Yes. Shows up to play. <laughs> presumably on set for six to seven hours. Uh, he he basically bookends this movie. Yep. He he gets you pumped because he barks every line he's he has. Uh, gets you excited, convinces you that this is a life or death scenario, basically. <laughs> and then he goes, tunes. <laughs> yeah, he tells them, you know, this story is not going to work. And then... Doesn't William Hurt go back to his desk and finds a card that was written to him? Right. He finds uh, a letter from... Uh, from Pansy. Guess, uh, Pansy, yes. Yeah. Is this a known actress, the old lady? She's not known to me. Because I want to say she was Cloris Leachman, but I never saw her. No. No, so she's like... Jean Stapleton. Okay, so the poor man's Cloris Leachman. <laughs> she writes to say, hey, I've got an angel out here if you want to come... Oh, she was... Um... Archie Bunker's wife on All in the Family. Okay. I doubt that means much to you coming to America. I, I know. I know the show. The early 2000s. In America, is that uh, Cloris Leachman, the poor man's Gene Stapleton? <laughs> Not to my Edith. Edith Bunker. Archie. She uh, won a Golden Globe for Best Actress in a television series. Oh, not for Michael? <laughs> no. Uh, I'm not sure if there are any acting nominations for Michael. Gene Stapleton, Edith Bunker, plays Pansy Milbank, and she sends away a letter to the mirror saying, hey, I've got a real fucking angel here. Get on out and see this. So William Hurt and um, Pastorelli go and present this story to Bob Hoskins. Somehow Andy McDowell gets wrapped up in this situation. She's They walk in in the She's middle like of the interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And Hoskins is sitting on the couch next to her saying, you want to be a star, don't you? And doesn't she lie says she's studied angels yeah so we find out later i'm sorry we don't know that she lied yet well we know that yeah that's right we don't know (laughs) there's something fishy about her but we don't know what it is essentially Uh, all this is to set up a an odd couple situation uh, with pastorelli as a third wheel well and the sparky pastorelli has his his soulmate that's and true. Sparky it's the dog. Two odd couples. It's just setting up. It's the scene in fucking Road Trip where they get DJ Qualls to lend him his car. <laughs> yeah. So the thing with the dog, because this this is really probably the most important plot point in the movie, is that Bob Hoskins can't get rid of Pastorelli, who I guess sucks at his job, because Pastor the dog is attached to Pastorelli. Mm-hmm. But Bob Hoskins is in love with the dog because he believes that the dog is the reincarnation of. A dog he had as a kid. Yeah, I mean, Pastorelli has all the trappings of a bad worker. His clothes don't fit him properly, always covered in flop sweat. It doesn't help that he's standing standing next to William Hurt, who's as alpha male as they come. The physical embodiment of Serene. (laughs) Yes. 
They set on a quest to Iowa to find this alleged angel. Um, William Hurt is looking for a story. This is basically what he's going to treat to save his career. And again, uh, Annie McDowell is coming along for the ride, claiming that she has uh, you know, studied angel phenomenon and knows quite a bit about angels. It's pretty smart because it's not like anybody can disprove that. If you say I'm an angel expert, what are they going to do? I mean, <laughs> yeah, for real. They arrive in Iowa. We are introduced to Pansy, who has a hell of a cough and is just, you know, an old lady with all due respect to uh, Miss Jean Stapleton. She here portrays an old lady that was kind of at the end of the road. No pun intended. <laughs> uh, we're introduced to Michael. We the first line we hear John Travolta utter in this is smokes. Where are my smokes? And that's before we even see him. And then the main thing is they build it up. Uh, it's uh, subverting expectations because it shows him walking upstairs and like the floor starting to give. So uh-huh. you're expecting him to come out like fucking fat bastard in Austin Powers. <laughs> and he comes down and he's definitely put on a few LBs for this role. You know, staying alive, John Travolta, this is not. No, this is this is that weird uh, Perfect, John Travolta. This is not. No, this is not even. I mean, definitely not uh, basic, mm-hmm. John Travolta. This is him taking taking a big chance. I think because he had just come back. We'd just gotten him back. Pulp Fiction was only a couple of years prior, mm-hmm. and he just went all in. He let himself go, which is pretty brave, I think, because there is no way he is. He has to be in his forties at least. Here, you put on that amount of weight. Yeah. You don't know if you're actually going to be able to shed it. He would have been 40. I'm I'm pretty, I'm kind of bummed. I know off the top of my head that John Travolta (laughs) was born in 1956, but yeah. Well, there you go. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that shows some commitment to Mm -hmm. the role because he could have played Michael as a more standard Travolta character, you know, smoother, less, uh, I wouldn't say Michael is repulsive, but he's definitely not what you think of when you think of. Uh, John Travolta. John Travolta. He's not or an angel. Vega. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's an angel. He's not a saint. <laughs> but even then, that doesn't say he's going to be overweight and he's going to chew his mouth open and smoke gonna, incessantly. S- smoke incessantly and kind of look like shit all the time. Uh, you could be play, a womanizer. Uh, yeah. Well, but see, you could have this movie play exactly the same way and he could still look better and sound better and it wouldn't affect the plot. So this is very much a Travolta choice. Where mm-hmm. he was like, hey, can I just transform myself? He does, but we do get a little bit of familiar Travolta a bit later on in the film. Um, Pansy ends up dying. Uh, sad, but it's part of life. <laughs> Your compassion is, is so believable. Uh, they attend her funeral. This is where we find that um, Andy McDowell was the original Juno. Or not Juno. Um, do you know Natalie Portman's character's name off the top of your head from Garden State? Oh, God, no. Okay, well, she was original that. You know how Natalie Portman tries to be so quirky and original? We find out here that Annie McDowell, just as a hobby of hers, writes country western songs on the side. She fucking pulls out her notepad at the funeral and starts writing down lyrics. <laughs> it's like something out of Walk the Line. It's a whole sequence of revelations. Walk hard. <laughs> because we... I mean, a big theme uh, with this in this movie is just the secrets we keep and how we they keep us from connecting, right? So there's a lot of mysteries running along. Uh, one of them is what's Andy McDowell's real role? Because we know that it's implied that Dorothy, we, Dorothy, Dorothy, Winters. Dorothy, 
she is not telling the truth about being an angel expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, we find out that Travolta is the one that wrote to William Hurt to get him to come. Yeah. So he had like an ulterior motive. It's not that the, the old lady did it. Because he reveals that it's basically just he wants to go on a road trip to Chicago. Yes. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, William Hurt, we don't even know at this point that this is a secret, but we'll find out later. It's like, why is he working for Bob Hoskins? <laughs> he seems like he's capable of so much more. And he's slumming it at this shitty uh, tabloid. I think the only pure person here is Pastorelli and his dog. Oh, yeah. He's open-hearted, has nothing to hide. Just a dude. Just a dude. And in some cases, being a dude, just a dude, is that's perfectly fine. I mean, you need him. It's a thing to be content with. You you need somebody that you can relate to because Andy McDowell is too hot and talented. Uh, William Hurt, it's too masculine. (laughs) It's too hot and talented. (laughs) And hot. Uh, And... And, Travolta, and Travolta, Travolta, the sexual tyrannosaur so, of his time. Yeah, give me, give me the the average Joe, the ordinary guy. Oh, thank you, Robert Passarelli. There you are with your dog. <laughs> He's a uh, Brian Cranston in Godzilla. It just brings <laughs> you down to earth to see him. The regular man POV. <laughs> Travolta and Hurt are like towering <laughs> over you. So, we, as Julio mentioned, we find out that this was all Michael's ploy to get to go to Chicago. He wants to see the Sears Tower. He wants to go on a road trip. Uh, because he wants to see the small attractions that the United States highways offer, which includes the world's largest ball of twine, the world's largest nonstick frying pan. It's it's the things we take for granted. I mean, honestly, this could have been an entry into our road trip uh, yes. story arc that we did. I had forgotten that it was a road trip. I did, too. Yeah, I just remember John Travolta having feathers that are falling <laughs> out of him consistently. <laughs> That's all you need. It's like, I'm in. Honestly, from the beginning, when the credits are rolling and you see Nora Ephron, uh, Travolta, William Hurt, uh, Andy McDowell, this was before I even realized who Pastorelli was. Yeah. It's like Bob Hoskins. And then it keeps going. Uh, Joy Lauren Adams, Carlo Gugino. Like, stop it. I got it. I'm in. <laughs> and uh, yeah, some of those characters we didn't even recognize at first when they yeah. came along. But, the, the you know, the staples of any true road trip movie. Uh, they go to their first few attractions. We end up in a saloon. I think the name of on the side is Joe's. This is actually uh, recorded at uh, a honky tonk saloon in Green, Texas, which I have been to. And as I told Julio, they still have a plaque on the wall commemorating the scenes with Travolta there. Um, it still looks pretty much the same, just as I say Joe's on the side. This Were you is- lucky enough to be in the middle of a bar brawl I- <laughs> with? amazingly impish and whimsical Randy Newman music playing in the background. <laughs> yes. Uh, through this, we learned that Travolta is a bit of a ladies man and that the women have an insatiable appetite for him. And they, but he doesn't resist it. No, he, he in fact encourages it. Yes. Which is great. I think that that was, that was a very generally sex and religion don't seem to go together. No. And, uh, it was refreshing to just see a movie where they were like, no, he's an angel. By now, we've established he's an angel. He has the wings. He, he's done a few tricks. And and now he's perfectly okay with hooking up, having some fun. You know, sex is just another way of enjoying life. Uh, the Like a Prayer music video was not the only piece of media in the <laughs> 90s to mix religion and sex. Uh yeah, he, he sees these women fawning over him, so he goes and hits the dance floor. Because it's a Travolta movie, goddammit. You know we're going to hit the dance floor at one time or the other. And he's so good, and he's able to captivate these women so heavily. Uh, 
they hang on his every movement to the point where they pull off this very choreographed dance routine having no prior practice. Well, he has powers. I mean, Clearly. There's a couple of times, a couple of shots where you see between his legs and the, the feathers from his wings are kind of showing. Yeah. I think that was Efren telling you, hey, there's more here than meets the eye. I mean, there's a little bit of mystical. It's like we uh, talked elements. about the profile of Arnold's beanbag in Terminator. <laughs> it's just instead it's angel's wings. Yeah. Oh, because he's wearing the trench coat. Trench coat. Yeah. Otherwise, people would be freaking out a little more probably. Well, he does show his wings to a character and she's just like, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get to that in a little bit, though. That's mid-coitus. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just wears this massive duster that has a huge hump in the back and still everyone's just like, God, he's so sexy. <laughs> but of course, he's he's stealing everyone's whim- uh, dates, all the dates in the venue. All the women are just flocking to him instinctively, like the sound of Capistrano, as Jim Carrey <laughs> would say in Dumb and Dumber. So naturally, all the dudes get pissed. And like in another Texas, goddammit. Another Fairly Brothers movie when Woody Harrelson, you don't mow another man's lawn. And all these Texas rednecks get all uppity and pissed off and surround with pool cues and uh, beer bottles. William Hurt and uh, Pastorelli, Huey comes in and he's just the only thing that he should have had like a bib on and like pasta sauce on his face. I don't know what they were eating, but I feel like the only thing that was missing was like him not being able to throw a punch. Cause his hands are filled with donuts or something. Right. Cause he gets immediately punched and knocked out. He's, I mean, he's a regular guy. He he's us. So of course he, he doesn't last five seconds in the fight. On the other hand, William hurt holds his own. He holds his own as you would expect. Andy McDowell already taking off. Cause she yes. was, she was a little disgusted by a, the going actually she comes back when they're dancing mm-hmm. right she's just watching from the sidelines because that's when we find out that every woman smells travolta differently it's his aroma yeah everybody's it's his, uh poison ivy uma thurman <laughs> yes whatever they like most that's what they 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 think he smells like and, and Andy mcdowell and- was wearing the rubber lips and <laughs> was able to he doesn't he claim that he blocked it from right her? okay yeah. Yeah. but even then she smells him because she says cookies that's right he smells like warm cookies and they're all arguing about it. It's caramels. No, it's cotton candy. And she, what would you smell Travolta? Like, what do I think he smells like? Um, so you have always thought Pierce Brosnan, you know, uh, probably smells the best of any man actor. That's one of my favorite lines ever in the office. When Andy says about Ryan, he smells like what I think Pierce Brosnan smells like. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, Travolta, the actor, I mean, Travolta oh, and I'm Michael. sorry. I was like, going to say like, were, Brad you... Pitt probably smells amazing. I thought we were going to start ranking shoot actors. <laughs> we should, but yeah. in this top period asses, of <laughs> top smells, uh, in the spirit of Michael, what if you were in the movie, Michael, and you were at that bar and you were a woman, I guess, what would you think Travolta smelled like? Probably like my great aunt Shirley's house. It just smelled like <laughs> sugar and cigarettes, like raw cane sugar and cigarettes. <laughs> Fresh baked bread would probably be my. <laughs> He's just chain smoking like a motherfucker. And during this throwdown, you would think like Saturday night's all right for fighting by Elton John or give me three steps by Leonard Skinner or street fighting man by the Rolling Stones. Something along those lines would be playing here. Instead, we've just got Randy Newman tickling the ivory on the keyboard, and <laughs> As he has it makes been it memorable. The entire movie, it's yeah, it makes it memorable because it's not some just overly machismo fighting scene. It's like some dudes throwing down with the Toy Story score in the background. Yep, and that's not to say that this movie is restricted to Randy Newman because there are a couple moments where the 
you just get an actual song. Oh yeah, when we set off on the road trip, they uh, I think play a CCR song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, but they just chose to to stick to Newman for the fight scene, <laughs> as anyone would. The only thing missing was a shot of Randy Newman actually playing the piano in one at corner the, of at the, the tavern. <laughs> yeah. Like a hat on that says Dolan 96. <laughs> they get into a massive fight and beat up a lot of people. So naturally they're arrested and put in the holding cell. I don't even know if they tell us, uh, you know, uh, in the movie uh, what city we're in. Or it's clearly not a city. It is a township or. It's not Green, Texas. It's not. They are in a holding cell. It's all four of them. And the local law enforcement was nice enough to make a little bed for Sparky outside the jail cell. I do love this because um, Huey basically tries to, you know, um, Pirates of the Caribbean style, have the dog get the keys and bring it to it. And I love how Sparky just kind of wakes up and looks up and then goes back to bed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this is where some development between Frank and Dorothy begins. Because isn't he like really mean to her? Yeah, he crosses a line. He He makes her cry. And then Travolta cashes in one of his uh, his favors because he he made a deal with both Hurt and McDowell mm-hmm. in order for him to go on the trip. He told William Hurt, "You're gonna you owe me something. You owe me an apology." And then to uh, and McDowell, he said, "In order for me to not say what you're really up to, so he, Travolta knew from the beginning, yeah, you're gonna have to sing, but I'm gonna tell you when." So this is when he cashes in the apology. That's right, and so. William Hurt, like uh, Colin Hanks in Orange County, just instinctively, I'm sorry. And then (laughs) Travolta looks at him like, you motherfucker. (laughs) From a dark corner of the cell, he's just shaking his head. (laughs) Nope. He's just whittling a shiv and just looking at (laughs) William Hurt. So, But he does give her like a heartfelt apology. Yeah, eventually. he Probably Travolta's biggest accomplishment in this movie, a movie where he brings a living being back to life. More, more, more astonishing than that is just the fact that he turns... William Hurt from an asshole into a decent person. He turns him into William Heal. (laughs) (laughs) They get out of jail and they are seen by a judge the next morning, played by Terry Garr, who you pointed out is Phoebe's mom. Yeah. From apparently a television show called Seinfeld. (laughs) It's It's a television show called Buddies. Buddies. Where are the friends? Yeah, it's same thing. It, women are powerless against his charm. He's Charles Minor on the another office reference. They just we needed the talking head of Michael saying, "I am aware of the impact I have on women, or the effect I have on women." Yeah, Travolta is very much aware of the effect he has on women, and he fucks himself uh, away out of court. He does. She just you know, it's like the beginning of a porno. She's like, <laughs> "You in my chambers." <laughs> And then he basically just like Ric Flair struts with her. And then he doesn't look back at him. That's what's missing from it. Like when (laughs) she opens the door and they go, and he should have just looked back and like nodded at him. I'll see you in two hours. Andy McDowell is very uh, put off by this. She's maybe not put off, annoyed. Yeah, but that's because even though she's not an angel expert, she does have a very uh, Catholic school square idea of what an angel should be like. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, Pastorelli is on the other end. Pastorelli's open to everything. And William Hurt is just a skeptic. Yeah. He's like, eh, he's not a real angel. Back on the road they go. Uh, I mentioned earlier they stop at the uh, world's largest nonstick frying pan. And it originally wasn't even going to happen because William Hurt's like, no, we don't have time. And Michael, not necessarily at a protest, but just basically to 
show him who's really in charge, makes the tire blow out in the car. He wishes it into existence. And conveniently, it's about 100 yards away from where the frying pan is. So he goes off and walks down there. Takes Sparky. He does take Sparky, and he leaves the other three behind. And who comes to save the day and uh, provide a spare tire and a tire jack but Silk Spectre 1 herself? We didn't even recognize her at first. Nope. Young angel-faced Carlo Gugino. Way before she was corrupted by Robert De Niro and the comedian. (laughs) The third time Nora Ephron has been on the Contrarians podcast is the third time that Carlo Gugino graces us with her presence. And This is like all the science at the end of this movie. (laughs) You know, it's just something special. It's a brewing. It is. It's our first William Hurt movie. Yeah. And uh, our second Andy McDowell. I mean, the, the numbers are just piling up here. <laughs> our hundredth John Travolta movie. <laughs> yeah, for real. So, Gugino is a bride, having just left her wedding, along with a gentleman by the name of Tom Hodges, who plays the character Groom. Um, they help... Who plays really lucky man, married to Carla Gugino. No shit. And he has, like, one line. I mean... It, his role in this movie, like what he did as an actor, was get to kiss Carla Gugino and just eat in like <laughs> a ludicrous of amounts of pie. <laughs> so God bless him. It was also his first he, job. As soon Tom, as he landed in L.A., Hollywood <laughs> stepped out of the bus and said, "Hey, an audition." Tom Hodges' uh, in memory clip <laughs> is going to be him eating a piece of pie and kissing Carla Gugino, while I don't know who's going to be the hot shit in two years when he passes. <laughs> It'll be Nicki Minaj doing a cover of some Beatles song with the rate they're going with that shit. Travolta, speaking of Beatles, Travolta likes the Beatles in this movie. Who doesn't? Yeah, but he's pretty forward about, Mm -hmm. he just sings, all you need is love. Remember what John and Paul said, and uh, Huey says, the apostles? No, the Beatles. They all end up at a, uh, I guess a truck stop, diner, what have you. I was way too excited by Amy herself. (laughs) Joey Lord and Adams reappearing on the podcast. This is before she was being chased yes. by by Ben Affleck. This would have been a year before her career defining role as Amy. And she's just a waitress there and but like wait. Before we get like a lot of hate mail, she is not Amy. No. She is whatever her name is. Anita. And- <laughs> no, I was gonna say whatever her name is in Chasing Amy, because she's not Amy. Shit, Amy is yes. is Silent Bob's is the girlfriend that, that he let get away. So to speak. So to speak. <laughs> uh, Alyssa. Alyssa. There you go. Joey Lauren Adams playing Anita. Uh, the restaurant has a name, Browns. She's there. She gives the whole rundown of all the pies they have. It's not unlike the scene in Joe Dirt where he just goes down the whole rigmarole of all the fireworks at the stand. I haven't seen Joe Dirt. <laughs> not, of, not on my list. Another great road trip movie. About an angel on this earth. <laughs> she says, hey, we got every type of pie under the sun. So they order two of every slice. And when we come back, she's just sitting on John Travolta's lap. I, I don't know if she's quit it. her job, but <laughs> she's she's just there. She wants all that comes with John Travolta, all that comes with Michael. Uh, and this is the scene where Michael cashes in his favor for uh, Dorothy to sing one of her country western songs. Yeah, she. Uh, so this is. A big celebration of pie, which I thought I thought William Hurt was the only one obsessed with pie because they made like at least one or two stops before this where he asked for pie, 
and he was ignored because the waitress was too obsessed with Travolta. Here, he finally gets his pie, and it, because somebody's paying attention to him, he's like, "Give me all the pies that you have." And so he doesn't want a chance going somewhere. And <laughs> yes. It's like when you find that McDonald's that has cherry pies and not just apple pies. <laughs> yes. You have to load up on them while you're there. Uh, it's like when you find the McRib out of season. Yes, it's just like give me. Uh, and and this prompts a discussion about what's so great about pies. And and that's when I was I thought this was gonna be a William Hurt monologue, but no, it turns out that. Everybody loves pie. Everybody mm-hmm. just explains why pie is so good. Uh, I guess as opposed to cake. I don't know. Yeah. But but of course the cherry on top of this pie conversation would be a song, and Travolta asks Annie McDowell to sing. So she she has I guess a little ditty. She sings about pie acapella, and then William Hurt says he wants another song. So she gets up there with the band at. Um... Browns, and then she really sings. Yes, up till then we've heard her sing a few times, mm-hmm. and it was just like, all right, that's Annie McDowell singing, and now she's on stage with a full band backing her up, and you're like, wow, country music lost a great singer when Annie McDowell decided that she was going to be an actress. She should have played opposite Bradley Cooper in A Star Is Born. <laughs> Would have made that a much more interesting movie. Well, then William Hurt should have been Bradley Cooper in oh, A Star Is Born. God. Way more believable that William Hurt would be on stage at the Grammys pissing his pants than Bradley Cooper. <laughs> the night concludes. Um, Frank goes to walk Dorothy back to her room. They naturally love is in the air at this point as pie and music tend to uh, spark. They share a kiss. They end up going up to her room together for the night. We see that uh, Huey spending his evening in his hotel room snuggling with Sparky. Truth be told, I think he had the best night of anybody. I don't know about that because Travolta (laughs) seems to be having a lot of fun. With uh, Joey Lauren Adams comes out. Uh, I guess her shift was finally over. They just decided. (laughs) They cash her out. She's like, I don't care about my tips. I just need to go. And then we hear her go into John Travolta's room and then we hear her say, wings far out. Uh, You want to talk about acceptance in a time... (laughs) A time I want to go to, as opposed to where we are right now in 2020, is a time where someone could just take their shirt off and have wings, and it would just be like, cool. Cool. Cool, Let's fuck. Let's get down to business. (laughs) Yeah. She said, wings, cool. Now drop them. (laughs) And it's it's cool because then you get to the morning after, and she is blissful when she comes out of that hotel room. Looks like she hasn't slept at all. Yeah, but she is. it's been the best day of her life. She's... Like I told you, we're watching. She's, She's seen the face of God. <laughs> yes. It was like, there's no way any man would ever match to up to this. And that's why she becomes a lesbian and goes on to star in Chasing Amy. And that is the last we see of her until in, Chasing in movie, Amy. Yeah. <laughs> William Hurt and Amy McDowell awaken the next morning to kind of just share stories about what brought them to the point they're at right now, which was what was Andy McDowell's situation? See, she's made allusion a couple of times to uh, just having a bad boyfriend, somebody. Several. Several. But, you know, people taking advantage of her for her money or whatever. And she tells, she tries to tell William Hurt the truth. And Mm -hmm. he's just too busy mansplaining his love for her (laughs) to really pay attention. And trying to brag about how he stuck with Bob Hoskins because didn't he like beat someone up at his previous job? Yeah, he punches editor. Yeah. And... And then he kind of, almost a whisper, is like, well, I was drunk. <laughs> uh, it's as much as we joke about Travolta and uh, and Joy Lauren Adams having great sex. 
the sex that William Hurt and Eddie McDowell must have had probably twice triple the intensity because William Hurt is super clingy yeah. in this scene. He's just hugging her and telling her there's nothing that you could have done that I wouldn't forgive. I would look past everything. And then when she turns around, she's gonna keep she's gonna say something. He's like, Don't say don't say it was a mistake. I couldn't take it. Like, dude, you've known her for two days. Also, the intensity's gotta be super high from the the lovemaking because uh it's not the telltale clothes scattered around the room. Like William Hurt's clothes were hung in the closet, so you know it was a thing of like he slowly took them off, knowing what he was about to do. He had been thinking about it the entire time. Like a five foot distance where he just sauntered over with like a full on rager, just getting ready to give it to Andy McDowell. Which is <laughs> smart on his part. I mean, that's a veteran's move because he's still got the crease in his pants and everything. He's a good man. He was he was thinking five moves ahead. It's like, <laughs> what's he gonna look like when we come in the morning? He's he's brushing his teeth when we come into this. Yeah. He's not doing the rookie mistake of kissing somebody with with uh bed mouth. <laughs> Instead, he went, brushes teeth, and then he goes for the kiss. So they get dressed. They come downstairs. Michael is across the street from the motel with Sparky. Uh, Andy McDowell just kind of greets him. The you know customary, hey, Sparky. So he begins taking off to run to her uh, in an active embrace. Unfortunately, uh, simultaneously, a truck comes by and hits old poor Sparky and lays him out for the count. The truck doesn't even slow down. No. It just keeps going. A real asshole. Obviously... A sad state of affairs, probably the saddest scene in the movie. And William Hurt basically just cuts a promo on Michael and says, you need to bring this dog back. And that's what he does. Michael first tries to say, you know, it's not my area. But at this point, I think the audience knows Michael can do. He can do it if he wants. And he does. He's been hoarding his miraculous power. He's been using it to get laid (laughs) instead of... (laughs) He does bring back Sparky, but we quickly learn why he was apprehensive about it. Basically, angels, it's kind of a loose explanation from him, but angels have a, just a X amount, like a, a certain allotment of miracles they can perform. And once they fill that up, that their time's pretty much done. Well, not just that. There's also, they can only come back to Earth a certain amount of times. Mm-hmm. And this is the last time for him. That's right. Because a big thing throughout the movie is just that he is kind of saying goodbye to, to Earth because he's not ever going to come back. And he keeps saying that, well, I'm going to miss this. Actually, right before Sparky gets hit, uh, it's just Travolta and Sparky. And Travolta gets his Oscar clip where yeah. he's just kind of teary-eyed and telling Sparky, man, this is harder than I thought, mm. saying goodbye. Yeah, he's kind of talking about changing a man's heart and all these really heavy overtones of what he has to do as an angel. Yeah. Oh, that's the other big secret running. It's like, what really brought Travolta here? And... It's been hinted at that it had to do with William Hurt. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this scene also, like right before Sparky gets hit, isn't it when uh, when John Hurt or when William Hurt finds out that Annie McDowell was why she's really there on the trip? Yes. Is it because she tells she tells him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she says, I don't know anything about angels. And her reasoning for being on the trip was she was going to take Huey's job, right? Yes, because she said her real job is uh, she know she may not be an angel expert, but she's a dog expert. Mm-hmm. So she was going to train and bond with uh, Sparky, and then once the Sparky was bonded to her, then Bob Hoskins could fire Pastorelli. Sad state of affairs. A very uh, vindictive and evil plot. Yeah, and William Hurt uh, 
turns out to be all talk <laughs> because his whole I would forgive you anything <laughs> doesn't really go that far. Doesn't hold up. Michael brings back Sparky and he begins fading quickly. His time on Earth is uh, the hours at hand, so to speak. But he wants to make it to Chicago. Uh, the gang gets him there and he does get to see the Sears Tower. And quickly after he fades, they just lay him kind of down on the sidewalk there and he is laid to rest. Fades it's pretty away. smart uh, that they chose. They could have taken him to a hospital because mm-hmm. he was in pretty bad shape for that last leg of the trip. But instead, they chose to take him to Sears Tower. Yes. Because they knew that some things are more important than medical care. Absolutely. Um, I mean, what were the doctors going to do anyway? He's an angel. George Clooney in The Perfect Storm. <laughs> Captain goes down with his ship. <laughs> we all go down with Travolta. And exactly. In this case, our ship is John Travolta. <laughs> uh, back at the National Mirror, they come back to let Bob Hoskins know it was just all a hoax. They don't have the heart to tell him the real story. Likely because he won't believe it. But they tell him it was all a hoax. And he didn't care anyway. No. He he just wants a dog. Yeah. it's He's just happy that he gets to keep the dog now. Or so he thinks. Yeah. W- what happens here? Uh, this kind of lost me. So Hoskins thinks that he can uh, have the dog now. But the dog still hates Hoskins. And Eddie McDowell pretends that she can't control the dog. Mm-hmm. So in Hoskins' eyes, the whole thing was a failure. Yes. And therefore, he has to keep Robert Passarelli. He can't fire Passarelli because the only person that the dog is bonded to is Passarelli. That's right. That's right. William Hurt doesn't give a shit. He quits anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we won. Like, I don't want to be in the same room as Andy McDowell. They go outside and he uh, he does his, his last name justice. He hurts Andy McDowell real bad in, in a sort of breakup where he just acts like, oh, we're just having fun. I don't know what the big deal is. Oh, yeah. It's super cold. And poor Andy McDowell probably just went home and wrote a country western song about it. <laughs> then there's like 15 minutes of meandering uh, where it's just kind of showing everyone trying to adjust back to life now that Michael has come and gone. That's kind of like what happens when you lose someone. Yes. You meander through life for a while. <laughs> and then on one fateful night, after a series of doubting to the point where William Hurt tries to, you know, convince himself it didn't even happen. He, he's clearly in denial. Uh, but in one last act of uh, angelic prowess, Michael brings back together uh, Frank and Dorothy. In the most playful, impish way. <laughs> he essentially makes them chase him, literally have a meat cute, <laughs> a bump cute, a bu- Yeah. Like a, a full contact cute. Excuse me. <laughs> They, they're both chasing him or what they think is him. And then they run into each other and, you know, they realize together what's brought them together and that they're supposed to be together. Yeah. William Hurd drops the I love you pretty quickly. That's, I'm telling you, had he that sex, like I said, must have been amazing. It's pretty jarring. Greg Kinnear, Tony Collette levels of just <laughs> walls shaking. And she reciprocates. And doesn't he like ask her to marry him here? Yes. Yeah. And then they walk off together holding hands and we see from uh, a dark alley John Travolta appear and he has Gene Stapleton with him again. So this is where the movie threw me for a loop. Was she always an angel? Was it all part of a big con? You know, she was never an old lady that was dying. It was all part of it was all staged so that William Hurt and Annie McDowell and everything, you know, everything happened the way that it was supposed to happen. I mean, there were Or did she become an angel when she died? They accounted for like 70% of the people at her funeral. So <laughs> I don't know if that many people knew her. So it's definitely within 
the you know the 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 house of probability. I mean, or possibility. But they also destroyed a bank. Yeah. Or was that a... That also looked like it was made of popsicle sticks, so... Yeah. I mean, the thing is, how important is William Hurt in the in the fabric of the universe that Travolta... He is John into... Connor, apparently. <laughs> yes. We must rescue his soul. He must fall in love again. I mean, it's pretty inspirational to know that the higher forces in the, in the universe mm-hmm. care so much, so deeply about our personal lives. <laughs> yeah. And they freeze time to where Travolta and... Uh, Edith Bunker can just kind of dance freely in the streets before down Sixth Street. Yes. That's the only way that you're dancing uh, down Sixth Street. They go by the Alamo Ritz. They stop in to see a Interstellar in 35, 70 millimeter print of Interstellar, <laughs> yeah. and then the movie fades to black. And Randy Newman, I think, tickles the ivory once more <laughs> to send us out. It's a movie. It's it's a delightful movie about appreciating the things that are right in front of you. You got to stop, smell the flowers, and, uh, and smell the cookies. And smell the cookies. <laughs> And get into a bar brawl at the the green honky tonk. All right. Yeah, I'm I'm out of things to say. <laughs> Let's, Let's go move to real it along talk. to real talk. I thought angels were cleaner. <clears throat> she doesn't mean to offend. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Miss Winters is an angel expert, and she gets kind of literal. What she probably wants to know is. Can you fly? I do not want to know if he can fly. I know he can't fly. Only little angels can fly because their wings fly. Says who? I just thought... Halos? Yes. Inner light? Yes. I'm not that kind of angel. What kind of angel are you? Michael is an archangel. He battled Lucifer and threw him out of heaven. Revelation 12, verse 7. That was a long time ago. (laughs) He smote a bank for me. All right, we are recording for Real Talk for Michael. What's um, the opposite the Elizabethtown effect? I guess we'll call that the Rise of Skywalker effect, like the more you think about it. <laughs> the more it you get like rest. That Contrarian's Corner, my performance in particular, was probably lacking because the more and more we kept talking, I was like, God, this movie's not good. Really? I liked it. Yeah. Uh, let's let's have it out. Let's do. Battle. Uh, battle. Michael. <laughs> Just looking at the poster here, it is cute. It has a uh, Scrappy in the bottom left corner with a feather in his mouth. I I love a good dog in a movie. I love you know I love dogs. So the fact that there was that little story arc made me happy. Just and, and this was a a good dog. This was a, a well utilized dog in the story. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, as a dog can do, it it served its purpose of bringing everyone together. I mean, not as good as a dog in the artist, but oh. <laughs> I don't even remember. I know the dog and the artist, I think, saves him from the fire or something. I don't know. He barks, and then the word bark hits the screen. <laughs> All right. Michael, released again on December 25th, 1996. I'm trying to see what the budget was for this. Doesn't look like that's published anywhere. I do know the gross was around, a, or not the gross, excuse me, but the box office return was around $120 million. Yeah, I'm not seeing a budget anywhere. I mean, sometimes those things aren't really disclosed. Travolta movie, though, I can guarantee you he made the lion's share of the money. And then coming in in a distant second place was Randy Newman. I'm John Travolta. God damn it. Did you watch Pulp Fiction? <laughs> I'm like, God, I got an Oscar. Or no, he didn't. Uh, My God, I got nominated. Yeah, nominated. <laughs> Nora Ephron directed this piece. 
She also wrote it, the screenplay, along with Delilah Efren, Peter Dexter, and Jim Quinlan. Uh, again, a 38 percenter on the old RT. So let's get into that. That does mean that a decent chunk of the critics enjoyed this. I mean, not enough to overturn the rottenness, but... David Anson from Newsweek says, I feared that Nora Ephron's angel movie, Michael, would offer another heap of pre-digested uplift, but was pleasantly surprised to find something quirkier and more off-center. Nell Minow from Movie Mom says, Some moments as lovely as the smell of cookies, especially the dance number. Yeah. I mean, I think we know what was on her mind through most of the movie. And finally, Caffeinated Clint from Film Thread, says Travolta magic is sprinkled everywhere. <laughs> he does sprinkle his magic. I will say it does appear he took this role pretty seriously because I, I obviously joked about his weight gain in Contrarian's Corner, which also is definitively pot calling the kettle black. So there's that. And he did not appear to be enjoying himself. At the same time, I felt like a lot of it was autopilot that he was on. No, see, I think you're taking Travolta for granted here. <laughs> so... That is a fair assessment because we have watched so much shit with him. So maybe this was the death rattle of him really trying. <laughs> I mean, him on autopilot is whatever the fuck he's doing in Wild Hogs. This is him having a good time does not mean that he wasn't trying, though. It's just that he was so joyous about a character that's meant to be joyous that maybe the line blurs. So maybe autopilot is wrong. Maybe my thing with him is... He can he possesses the ability to be so effortlessly good. And I think that's probably what's shining through here. This is clearly not Vincent Vega or, you know, we're not talking Saturday Night Fever levels of performance here, but he's in there with some heavy swingers too, (laughs) some heavy punchers uh, in the form of William Hurt and Andy McDowell. And he just towers over them. With his performance. He has to. I mean, he's written to tower over everybody. And he delivers. Yeah. So, yeah, autopilot's the wrong uh, way of looking at this. I think the way it should just be looked at, which is true, is that John Travolta was a once-in-a-lifetime talent <laughs> when it came to acting. He's not flexing any muscles. There here. you go. That's he's what it is. He's just kind of effortlessly being great. He's just good. Although set in Iowa, many scenes were filmed around New Braunfels, Texas, which is, what, 40 miles away from us, give or take? Eh. Could be at that Bucky's, probably about an hour and 20 minutes, depending on traffic. <laughs> uh, Green Hall, built in 1878 and known as the oldest continual uh, dance hall in Texas, serves as Joe's, where the dance to Chain of Fools and the ensuing bar brawl take place. Uh, as I told Julio recording, I've been there. And as I said, in the first portion, they do have a, a plaque. It's known as the oldest honky tonk in Texas and having not been to Iowa, but having definitely traveled the back roads of Texas, especially central Texas can tell you, it definitely matches up with the uh, scenery in this one. That's not honky tonk though. What they, when they, when Stravolta gets to the dance. Oh no, 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 no. Yeah. It's not supposed to be, it's not supposed to be green hall. It's supposed to be Joe's. Right. They play different music at Joe's and they play at green hall. <laughs> John Travolta took 500 hours of Spanish lessons in preparation for this film. What? Why, you may ask? Okay. <laughs> Just in case. Please tell me that's the truth. Yes. Just in case. <laughs> that's the quote that he said when someone asked him about it. Um, I mean, that's that's Travolta. That's 
that's great. How kind of weird he is. That that makes perfect sense. Maybe he was determined to be the Spanish dub in Spain. That would be awesome. <laughs> uh, oh, Dios mío. Soy John Travolta. <laughs> he just looks at uh, Sparky. Vai con Dios. <laughs> Uh, Jack Nicholson turned down the lead role. Too old. Oh, God, yes. Unless you were going to recast Andy McDowell also. Before I get to the last piece of trivia here, I mean, what does work and succeed about this movie solely hinges on the fact that it's Travolta. <laughs> I love Andy McDowell. William Hurt's dope. I don't, I don't really, uh, romantic comedy William Hurt is not my go-to William Hurt, but... Oh, I think he's funny here. It's just that they rushed that relationship really fast. The- Which is so weird because, like, this movie's an hour and 45 minutes long. And it feels like they had, like, maybe 40 minutes of material. And then they just needed to stretch that out. But then they rush, like, really important things in the movie. Yeah, there there was something. I know it's the convention, it's the romantic comedy convention. But I think even in by the nineties, it was a little too late for that kind of instant "I'm in love, marry me." Oh uh, yeah, thing that happens here. It's just, but before that, I think that the relationship was building up nicely. They yeah, this sort was... of hated each other, didn't respect each other. Then he apologized, then she sang. Then they had sex. Okay, up till then we're good. This was the same year as Jerry Maguire. Like, the, you want to talk about a movie that like builds to the relationship that working. earns, yeah, its happy ending. To be fair, Jerry Maguire exists on a different plane than uh, <laughs> Michael. And the the last thing here that I found is that uh, allegedly a sequel has been in the work for twenty years. Travolta consistently calls it his finest work. It's been expected for twenty twenty. God, Michael, too. I would watch it. It's like, uh, you know, Revolutionary Road. I was talking about that earlier. It's Dorothy and Frank just absolutely (laughs) miserable at home. And he shows up to, oh, my God, I brought you together. (laughs) Now I got to show you the true meaning of love. (laughs) Where are my smokes? I would be very disappointed if the sequel didn't feature everybody. Well, actually, fuck, Robert Pastorelli's dead, so they couldn't bring him back. It's too uh, sad now. Don't do it. Well, I was about to say also, this movie is almost uh, 25 years old. And as much as I don't like the thought of it, I'm pretty sure Sparky's no longer with us either. Yeah, but you can fake Sparky. And didn't Bob Hoskins pass? Yeah, but you don't expect Bob Hoskins back. Of course you do. No, you can, you can get his son is running the mirror now. Uh, but you expect the trio. If you haven't caught on, that's, my, that's the extent of my impression of Bob Hoskins. Yeah, I, you would have to get the the band back together. I mean, fuck, you could do like um the at the end they wave to like the the ghost reflection of everyone that's passed since then. <laughs> oh my god. Hayden Christensen's just there for no Hoskins reason. and Pastorelli are like holding hands, like <laughs> waving back. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird movie that was made for like general popcorn consumption because it does tackle some interesting ideas. It seems like a movie that released today would lean much harder into a certain element of it, be it the surprising comedy or the religious aspect of it um, or the love story. 
it seems like definitely a movie that existed in 1996. <laughs> who who was it that we had on here that referred to something as just Jordan? It's a nothing movie, like, and that's how I see this here. I, I certainly don't feel like I wasted my time watching it or anything like that. This is better than Passengers. Mm, I don't think so. I think Travolta alone elevates it. And well, we talked about it, it, when we we're talking about Travolta movies, we just got to stay in the wheelhouse. And this was the year before Phenomenon. Like I said, I would definitely rewatch this before Phenomenon. And that was more well received than this. Why? I don't understand. What what made people mad that Travolta was desecrating religion or because I laughed a lot. I laughed more than I remember. It's entertaining. I, I've seen this movie once before and I remember the first time I watched it, I was kind of eh. the ending in particular was a turnoff uh, this time because I knew what was going to happen. I was just like, ah, whatever. That's right. He he disappears, but then he comes back. The movie goes on way too long after he dies. Well, yeah, it's such a way to cheapen it, too, because he dies, but then it turns out that not he really. He didn't die? <laughs> yeah, so... Eh. And then, yeah, you have that thing of, like, okay, was Edith part of this <laughs> plan? If not, why is she there? It doesn't answer, though, why William Hurt is special enough to warrant all this. Right. What made Travolta just pick William Hurt and it's like, my last trip to Earth is going to be about this, unless that was bullshit. And mm-hmm. and the ending is supposed to mean that, no, there's no limit to how many times he can come. <laughs> he just said that to get William Hurt on his side. I don't know. I, but the mythology, and every time that Travolta would start talking about what it was like to be an angel and the things that he had done and the things that he could do, it was I always found it really funny. Mm-hmm. And... If nothing else, I wanted more of him. I think that you're saying, what if they made this movie today? At least if it was up to me, I would focus more on the Travolta mythology. And, you know, what is it like for an angel to come here and just be the way that Travolta was? And you would think it's, in a way, that's the cheapest joke. It's like, oh, it's an angel, but he's also really crass and, uh, you know, like sweet a lot of sugar. And, you know, that's kind of like an easy joke to make. And smokes, has sex. But... But Travolta is so lovable as as this angel that really he kind of transcends the the easy joke and it's just a character now. I I totally buy him as a character that you know. I take it back. I want to see more Michael adventures. He doesn't. They don't have to bring everybody else back. The problem is he'll with all the shit he's had put in his face. He'll look younger in this one than he <laughs> it's did. It's a prequel. Yeah, <laughs> this is where you find out why why William he was sent Hurt. Back to, and yeah. <laughs> William Hurt with like an amazing uh, wig on. No, I definitely, I really loved that first shot of Travolta just from a standpoint of he pulls it off really well when he just walks down to the kitchen and he's got, he's woken up, he's got a fresh smoke going and I, I'm pretty sure he grabs a a Schlitz beer out of the fridge, <laughs> which is such an obscure brand to, to grab and pop a top in the morning. It, it's like I said, it's weird, the pacing and what is focused upon is so disjointed that it, I forget the, we did another movie recently where I I was talking about this. This felt so much longer to me than Watchmen, which is three hours and 15 minutes long. Duplex. Duplex. God. Okay. Yes. This doesn't feel as long as duplex. (laughs) And I would watch Michael 10 times in a row before I watch (laughs) duplex again. But it's, yeah, the pacing is so weird. And, like, the things they choose to focus on versus further diving into why. Like, that whole scene where he, like, runs at the bull and they just butt heads. That takes up, like, five to six minutes of the movie that you could spend explaining more about 
uh, Andy McDowell and William Hurt's past because their story is basically, hello. Oh, we're with an angel. Do you want to fuck? <laughs> hey, this is how I screwed up my job. <laughs> hey, this is how I screwed up my life. You did this. I don't want to talk to you. I love you. Let's get married. You're missing two critical beats. What's that? I'm sorry. And let me sing you a song about pies. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Yeah, the ending is like the Simpsons rewritten end of um, Gone with the Wind. When they cut out, frankly, I don't give a damn. They oh. just, what I, frankly, my dear, I love you. Let's get married. <laughs> That's how this movie ends. Um, but I like the William Hurt character which is also why this feels such a like such a betrayal i guess of, of his character i ha- i would have no problem with him getting to that point but yeah we're missing certain steps but i he i mean talk about it, effortless i think that he is also pretty effortless at being just a sort of uh playing a smarmy reporter that's kind of given up on being ethical and it's not necessarily that i've seen many william hurt roles like that he usually just feels like i've seen more like play the patriarch but he was here. He's just so good at doing that and being just. You believe that smart. he really doesn't give a shit and yeah. would like step on your neck to get ahead type yep. thing. Yeah. yeah. He's uh, believable. Um, definitely. I mean, everyone is. It, you know, we talk about all the time and we do movies like this that this movie was not made for you and I to view through 2020 lenses. Right. And, and I mean, the year 2020. Uh, it's. It was made for mass consumption in 1996 when Travolta was riding on top of the world. And um, it, to me, a more interesting movie is these. They're not middle aged, but, you know, approaching it. I would I would guess that like Andy McDowell and William Hurt were like early 40s in this. But mm. the whole idea of just like, yeah, I'm attracted to you, but I'm a damaged person. So I don't want to actually do anything like that's there's more intrigue in that. But that's not what this movie is trying to do. Unfortunately, that's just kind of where my brain goes when I watch movies sometimes, especially movies where the acting's really good. And there's like uh, the table set for something more fascinating than what I actually get. Mm-hmm. But then with something like this, I just have to remind myself uh, this was for, uh, you know, the um, silver haired women on you know after the bridge club to go together to see the john travolta movie where he plays an angel and it's the funniest thing you've ever seen <laughs> um i remember going to see it in the theater it, I, I i'd have a hard time calling it a family movie but it's it's not inappropriate for children i know that much it's no just, i mean they might wonder a little bit about what travolta was doing with joey lauren adams when they went into his room god bless or why william hurt is putting his pants back on the, morning, <laughs> the next morning. I mean, a generation of 16, you know, 16 and 17 year olds could take note. Hang your clothes up. Start with an approach. You have the whole night. Yes, exactly. You have, you know, your wedding night to just rip your clothes <laughs> off each other and go to town. Uh, take your time. Make sure take some pie back to the hotel room. <laughs> Joey Lauren Adams, man. What a smoke show. So fucking hot. <laughs> And I mean, Andy McDowell's gorgeous. And then you got Carla Gugino. Just warming up to take over Hollywood. That happened at the same time with you and me realizing who she was. She was in the movie for maybe five or six minutes at this point. And then we're like, wait a minute. Do you think that we would have recognized her uh, if we hadn't seen her name in the credits? Probably not. I was bummed that she didn't get because I kept waiting for her to have a scene. I mean, she has a nothing part, but it was definitely a novelty to see her. 
Uh, homeboy, Robert Pastorelli, who, you know, we shit on to no end for be cool. He's perfectly fine in this. He's like, um, in another life, I could have seen George Went playing this role of like, kind of like the thankless disheveled man who, uh, gets his job done, but it's kind of an oaf or, um, a lovable loser type thing. Yeah. He's a, he's just like we were saying in terms corner, he's a regular guy. He would be Josh Gad in this one. He's like oh, he's the comic relief. Twenty twenty next to the alpha male. Twenty twenty Michael. We got Josh Gad as Huey. Actually, Ooh. no. Josh Gad would be Travolta. Mm. <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't. You don't buy him as as the guy that smells like cookies and can no. hook up with whoever. All right, let's. He's Huey. He's Huey. Um, who would be Dorothy? Who's kind of a seasoned actress. That could do that. Amy Adams. Ooh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. And but now you need somebody can go toe to toe against Amy Adams for the William Hurt part. For Frank, I don't know. He, he's not old enough. I would say Adam Driver, but he would need about another uh, five or six years. Yeah, on no. Unless you forget about Amy Adams, just cast uh, Scarlett Johansson, and that way you have the marriage story reunion. Yeah, no. And then who would play Michael? Fastbender. <laughs> Fossbender would be a really good Frank. You think? Yeah, he can be an asshole. Yeah, and him and yeah, I, th- I guess when he yells at Michael and basically bullies him into bringing Sparky back. Yes. Oh hell yeah, Striker. <laughs> him and Amy Adams going toe to toe would be tremendous. And then shit, just because we've compared him before, JGL as Michael. <laughs> He can dance. He's too young, though. He he can dance. <laughs> He's too young. But there's no there's no age to Michael. He's an angel. He can look however uh, he wants. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, I was gonna say Mickey Rourke, <laughs> but I like I was thinking, yeah, the timeline would match up because that would have been a like Mickey Rourke. He should not have cashed in on Whiplash. He should have like said, "God damn it, I'm coming off this Oscar nomination. We're remaking Michael." That's what we're doing. And I'm going to be the angel. <laughs> but there's no way that would be pulled off because I, I don't think I could ever buy that Mickey Rourke has sympathy for anyone. <laughs> Antonio Banderas. Uh, yeah. He wouldn't even have to learn I'm going Spanish. for a little bit older. I just, I'm just i looking for some silver. You know, some, yeah, some no, Banderas right now. And that new movie where he got nominated. He can dance too, can he? Oh, yeah. 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 There you go. Hollywood. Make it happen. Make it happen. Antonio Banderas, Josh Gad, Michael Fassbender, Amy Adams. And then in the Bob Hoskins role, we'll do uh, do something kind of off the wall, something that they're not expecting. Does he expecting. have to be British? No, 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 no. Gender swap. It can be just a, a hardcore, hard-ass woman. You could do that, or you could do like um, Terry Crews, because you still have some like the element of kind of, you kind of laugh at him when he gets really serious about uh-huh, stuff, because uh-huh. he's so good with the physical presence. I think that yeah. would work, too. And I could totally buy him, like, you know, being really smitten with a dog and just, like, really wanting to keep this and win a bet. So there you go. And then fucking McGee can direct it. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, it, like I said, like Jordan said about passengers, and I think that's kind of a, he, that was a perfect quote for this podcast. A, a nothing movie's fine. It doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Um, my biggest thing was there were points in this where I was just, this movie felt like a hose that occasionally Nora Ephron stepped on and allowed to build up for a second. And then a lot of shit came out all at once. And it was like, 
stretches of nothing happening and meandering and then a ton of dialogue or exposition all at one time. It, the pacing really threw it off, but that's no one that acted in this movie is at fault for any of those issues. No. And I think, honestly, if if the ending was better, if they stuck the landing, we wouldn't worry so much about the meandering because you'd be oh, like, yeah. oh, it was worth it. But because the ending is just so weird, you go back and just poke things. You're like, why did you meander when you could have been building up better to this? Like, I think the time from him uh, resurrecting Sparky to him dying is probably like three or four minutes. Yep. They get in the car and then he dies. And that would work if it was a movie from the 50s where the credits roll right after he dies. But no, it, yeah. It, That'd be so grim, too. He dies, he disappears on the asphalt. Roll if, credits. I can't let you. <laughs> Randy Newman just over the credits. Yeah. I mean, that, okay, did that take you out of it at any point? The music? Yeah. No, I, I was laughing about it because you kept mentioning it so i just it was always in my mind but not in a, in a bad way it was so weird because they did pick some really good road trip songs that were like actually you know licensed music yeah but then during certain scenes just the uh i can just see randy newman with the the keyboard that you strap around your neck uh-huh. and it like re- rested on his belly like he has a gut like me and he's just like walking behind travolta like <laughs> And the idea of John Travolta and Randy Newman speaking to each other is <laughs> unbelievable to me. Oh, my God. I love your music. Oh, I love you, too, John. <laughs> uh, where do you rank this on uh, on Travolta dance scenes? Uh, it's Snow Jack Rabbit Slims. No, well, what is? And it's not. Uh... The only the 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 goat John Travolta dance scene is born to hand jive. Right. That that's. You want to talk about seeing the face of God. <laughs> after we did Grease for the podcast, I like rewatched that twice a day, every day for like a week <laughs> afterwards. Because I didn't realize, and as many times as I had seen that movie, I didn't realize until we watched it for the podcast, how much of that sequence is one shot. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking impressive. And then, yeah, Jackrabbit Slim's rules. This is um, iconic in a sense of it's Texas iconic. I mean, yeah. The, they're, the most southern Travolta we've seen. Yeah, and that place in green really hinges their hat on it. And I remember going there, I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. But rewatching it, I think, I mean, obviously it's better than Be Cool. Oh, fuck yeah. And then what else are we contending with? It's not better than anything in Saturday Night Fever. Uh, there's the, the Elvis number in Look Who's Talking To. I forgot about all that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would put it above that. <laughs> It's so funny to go over Travolta's filmography and just see, look who's talking to to Pulp Fiction. It's like, God, what a springboard. We talked about it during the summer of Travolta, and if you are a recent listener uh, or a longtime listener and never got around to listening to that, I do recommend going back to it because one of the things that we talked about and obviously we mentioned on here is the effortless nature of John Travolta. And even with this movie being just kind of middle of the road as it is, the dance scene it goes back to what we talked about with that he is able to be a cool white guy which is like (laughs) one of the most difficult things to pull off ever and he has this just indescribable ability to turn it on at the drop of a hat and that happens here too and just the way he's like circling those women and like (laughs) making them dance with each other it's just like 
shit, man. This is great. This is this is a perfect YouTube scene. Sometimes you just get a wild hair up your ass and you're looking at <laughs> clips on YouTube, looking this up and watching it. Um, just look up Travolta's dance from Michael. Yeah. I think we talked about when we did our wrap up on that, though. There's really no bad Tra- Travolta dancing except for Be Cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and maybe even then that's on the on the Travolta curve. Because if you were just comparing his dance number in Be Cool versus just your average dance number from a you know middle aged white guy, it yeah. would it would be decent. It would put up a fight. Is there any dancing and get shorty? No. Mm. Shame. No. I, he knew when to like ran it in. He still, I the part of that movie that I retain for just what I was saying is like fuck. He's such a cool white guy. There's a part, I think it's at the end when him and Renee Russo are leaving set and he just walks over to the, it's his car and he walks to the passenger side and opens the door for her and closes it behind her. And it's just such a small, like, but the way he does it and everything, I'm like, God damn, what a G. I just thought of this, but I I thought about it while we were watching the movie. Do you think in this remake, they they would focus so much on the fact that he can just make women drop their panties in a second. Well, Fassbender, yeah. <laughs> and Antonio Banderas, I mean. Yeah. Well, but that's the thing. Are you taking agency away from women? You never see it happen to men. So what are you saying by the fact that they're vulnerable to this and men aren't? Personally, I mean, gender politics aside, I think it would be funnier. And maybe you couldn't do that in the 90s, but you could do it now. If everybody was horny for Michael. Yeah. You know, is everybody can smell him. And yeah, he can block people. But the fact is just that because angels are supposed to be genderless. Now I sound like Andy McDowell in the <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> but traditionally, you would think an angel is just kind of goes both ways. So, yeah. And you don't have to take it completely over the top to where he like has sex with a dude, has sex with a girl, that type of thing. You don't even have to do scenes where like he has sex. Basic instinct to kind of orgy. Yeah. <laughs> but no, that, yeah, that'd be great. Like, uh, just dancing with anybody and everybody and like, everyone's just horny for him. Right. Like, yeah. It's not a bar. I mean, it is anymore. Antonio just... Banderas for Christ's sake. <laughs> it, it'd be believable. Fast men are just like dabbing at his forehead. <laughs> oh dear. I guess if I was more prone to being offended by those things, maybe you could take umbrage with that, that women just fawn over him in this, but it, well, it's, it's played as a joke. It yeah. is. And there's no part where he like specifically just takes advantage of women. No, I mean, he, he does fuck the judge, <laughs> Phoebe's mom and uh Joey Lauren Adams, but well, Joey Lauren Adams. I like it because they show you the, the aftermath mm-hmm. and she is very happy. Yeah. So, you're just left to believe that it was a great experience. And then he comes out of his room like uh, his hair is kind of unkempt <laughs> and he's got that big goofy smile on his face. Yeah. At no point does it seem like it's try- I mean, it's written by a woman, but at no point does it seem like they're trying to act like women are dumb. Right. It's just it's a supernatural thing. And yeah. And Annie McDowell, I think. Holds her own. I mean, granted, she was blocked, but mm-hmm. even still, like we don't know that to be true. But <laughs> just Travolta. That's his uh, his default defense. If you're not hot for him, it's like, oh no, I blocked it. I planned it that way. Again, much like uh, our soon to be released Street Fighter episode, would wage substantial money on this being the most uh, in depth analysis of the movie Michael <laughs> in a film podcast on the internet right now. 
Uh, I would give this a C. This is a middle of the road movie. I, I certainly didn't feel like I wasted my time. There were issues I had with, as I mentioned, the pacing and the writing. But uh, at the end of the day, there's enough to make it worth watching. It's I'm not going to own it or you know regularly revisit it. But three and a half stars for me. I really I I believe that if the ending was stronger, everything else would look better in retrospect. But because it's just so weird that. It feels like a cheat. And this is me being way too analytical for what they are doing. But if you tell me that this is Travolta's last trip and you're setting a sort of timer where you just say once he spends out his his miracles, he's gone. And they reach that timer and he, in quotation marks, dies. And then you just bring him back like nothing. It seems like something. It feels like one of those movies that the test screening the response was, well, we want Travolta back. So they just like added the ending. <laughs> right. Because you don't need him back in order for William Hurt and Andy McDowell to just get back together. Oh, no. Yeah. They could just run into each other anyway. They could even see the signs like they were doing where they see, they hear talk about angels and they see Michael's name everywhere. And then they run into each other and they get back together. But yeah, I can just see either studio head or, or test audiences going, but what happened to Travolta? <laughs> Kelly Preston, mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> you're going to get my John back on screen. Uh, yeah, it should have ended with them like getting pie at a diner together. Yes. And their waiter. 10 years later. Yes. And their waiter's name, you see just the name tag, it says Michael. Done. Done. You're welcome, Hollywood. <laughs> All right. So that is going to wrap up episode 103, Michael, uh, moving on to 104, uh, going back to the other side of the coin. Of the fresh movies, the certified fresh films. We are tackling our first David Lynch movie of the podcast. We're old enough to handle it now. I believe so. It's been about a six-year run building to this. Uh, The 93% Towering Inferno Blue Velvet on Rotten Tomatoes. Interestingly enough, Roger Ebert gave it one star, and I'm sure we will talk about Mr. Ebert's review of it when Um, we get to it. It's funny that you mentioned Jordan earlier because he... He finally watched it, I guess, and did not care for it. It's David Lynch, man. It, yeah. it, there's not. Uh, I've seen it once, uh, I, and I. It's fucking weird. I mean, I remember stuff about it. There's a severed ear at the beginning, I think. <laughs> there's a very uncomfortable scene with Dennis Hopper and the uh, young lady in the movie. I forget her name. So that'll be fun. It'll be very interesting <laughs> trying to you know do our whole gimmick with a David Lynch movie. I will say I have just undying adoration for that man, just the way he carries himself and how not seriously he takes it, but at the same time he has a clear vision for what he wants his movies and his career to be. I think it's a, it, I think his his way of carrying himself and his approach to the game is one that should be emulated more. He would have kept Michael dead. He wouldn't have caved <laughs> to the pressure. And the sequence of Andy McDowell singing would have been a lot longer and like at some point William Hurt just would have rubbed the pie on his face (laughs) so Blue Velvet looking forward to doing that figuring out how to approach it in the way we do Uh, also since we mentioned the summer of Travolta it's I don't think that we've actually mentioned it on air we've made allusions to it on our Instagram and on Twitter but we do have a summer event this year this is your brainchild Julio your I mean, baby. It's it's been it's been run by and approved by the Mattis machine. Yes. Uh, 
we'll, I, I don't think I'm gonna, no, fuck it. We'll just go and give you the entire lineup of what will be known as the Summer of Winona. <laughs> and that is Winona Ryder, of course. So much like we did with John Travolta, we're gonna do a full-on four months of uh, Winona Ryder movies, her ups and downs and her in-betweens. Uh, so brace yourselves. Catch up on uh, some of these if you haven't seen them. We're going to start with Mr. Deeds, then go on to Edward Scissorhands, then Alien Resurrection, then Little Women, the 94 version, obviously not the very recent Oscar nominee. Spoiler, there's not a Little Women, there's a lot of women. <laughs> uh, Reality Bites, of course, one that's been mentioned on the podcast oh, yeah. plenty of times. Bram Stoker's Dracula. This movie called The Darwin Awards which I was just kind of like scraping the barrel of the rotten movies that she's had recently. And I was like, this looks interesting. Uh, Beetlejuice, The Crucible, The Dilemma, Heathers. And then we'll close with just like we had the Travoltis at the end of the summer of Travolta. We'll have the Winonis. And we'll also address Stranger Things, which seems to be the big thing that... uh, the big strange thing that she has going on. Yeah. (laughs) The last three, four years. Set the world on fire. Yeah. So... Be ready for that. That starts on May 1st. All right. Moving along to plugs, our usual, our perennial plugs. The Festivirs provide our opening and closing tracks, those being uh, Last Stand and Summer of 99, respectively. Be sure to visit thefestiveyears.com for all your festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster, Hans Rodgieser, he did our logo he has two podcasts, Nación Combi and Living in Peru. Nación Combi is in Spanish. You can find it in any podcatcher. It's about Peruvian current affairs. Living in Peru is about Peruvian immigrants or immigrants to Peru, rather. It's in English. And you can find it on iVox. He also does a lot of other stuff. You can look it up on, at mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can uh, contact him on Twitter at mildemonios. Email him mildemonios at hotmail.com. Ask him about his latest novel, zombie novel set in peru the third in a series that seems to be best-selling uh <laughs> hans also has a lot of thoughts about movies he is because of him that we did an episode on the original fly uh, a few months ago mm-hmm. and he finally got around to sending me some feedback about that so we'll play that right now you know guys i told you not to do it and you just went and did it I told you not to devote a whole episode to the original Fly movie, 1958. And don't think for a moment that I had any intention of manipulating anybody by presenting it as a dare. I tried to warn you and you just didn't listen. I'm surprised that you like this crap. It's such a simple little story with very simple characters. The lady goes through a traumatic experience. She just saw his husband as a monster struggling between committing suicide and killing her. And she just goes through a day or two of laying in bed. And that's it. Life goes on like nothing for her. Not only that, but she hooks up with the dead husband's brother, Vincent Price. Just like that. And Vincent Price, he just shows up, hears this crazy story, and instead of sending her to the madhouse, just keeps her around. Oh no, wait, he sees his brother as a freaking fly, crying for help with that funny voice. Help, help. I mean, if that happens to me or you or any 
person in the real life, he will be traumatized for life. But he just goes on, hooks up with the lady, takes care of the kid, and that's it. Nothing happens. And the special effects are bad, even for the time. It's 1958. It's the same year that Dracula was released, with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Such a fine movie, with very good effects, and very good makeup, and very good action scenes. And very profound story. Of course you are not going to make an episode about 1958's Dracula. You are too soft for that. But believe me, it's a very profound movie. So in comparison to that, The Fly is crap. It's a piece of garbage. And the year before that, The Incredible Shrinking Man was made. Written by Richard Matheson, the guy who wrote I Legend. Compare The Fly to Body Snatchers, 1956. Body Snatchers is the golden standard for classic American horror films. The Fly. What's wrong with you? Although I guess it's a good thing that you made a line in the sun for The Fly. And don't pretend to go any further. Body Snatchers is way out of your league, guys. Don't you dare making a, an episode about that. You're not ready. Well, I just hope your audience knows better anyway. Bye. So, Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> yes. That's what like. So when we get around to our horror movie uh, arc later this year uh, that he already made us special logos for, um, I guess we'll be taking a look at Dracula and Body Snatchers. We'll have to put it to the test. Yeah. We'll, we'll look at the Rotten Tomato scores and, and go from there. I think what we what made him most mad was we ended up doing the episode and then he listened to it and just got mad about it all over again. <laughs> It was like self-fulfilling prophecy, pretty much. It was like somebody disliking uh, The Rise of Skywalker, then listening to an episode of podcast about Rise of Skywalker. It just reliving the horror once again. I have no idea what you're talking about. Not something I've done multiple times. Oh, oh that's happened to me. I was referring <laughs> to myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, uh, plugs. Like I said, I've uncharacteristically just been kind of burning through a stack of DVDs in my room. Um, I guess I'll just bring up Revolutionary Road because... Rewatching it, I think I've officially entered that into the Requiem for a Dream of I can completely acknowledge how powerful and good it is. It's so well shot and so well acted. It it looks amazing. Like the wardrobe. Requiem for a Dream or Revolutionary Road? Revolutionary Road, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. But why I say I entered in that category, I probably have no interest in ever watching it again <laughs> in my life. I is it too unpleasant? Yes, and I remember loving it. That I watched it once when it came out in theaters in 2008, and I don't remember why I remember this so well, but I do. I went to the theater I worked at at the time, and no one else was in there, and I had two to-go boxes full of chilies, and I just like <laughs> spread out over like four seats and had like a jumbo fruit punch, and there's just me alone in the theater chowing down on a triple play and chips and salsa from chilies. Just like, nah, they're not happy, you know, just being really obnoxious in the theater. Um, but remember in our Terminator episode where I talked about watching T2 at like 16 and being like, this isn't that bad. Like the scene where the, all the kids die. Yeah. And then rewatching it as an adult being like, this is fucking awful. When I watched it when I was 20, 21, whatever, 22, I was just like, oh, this is good. This is like, this is a good movie. Uh-huh. And then rewatching it. Uh, the other day I was like, this is terrifying. It's like, this is not what I want out of life. And I hope it doesn't come to this, but I can acknowledge how good it is much like Requiem for a dream. It's just, 
it's so off-putting and so unpleasant and being 32 years old going on 33 i only have so much time left on this planet that i'd rather be not watching something that will put my mind in kind of a dark place <laughs> for a couple of days but like i texted you though i i remembered michael shannon got a best supporting actor nomination he's in that movie for like seven minutes he's you know he went to the judy dench school of uh award nominations i'm gonna make my impression yeah my mark uh, All of that to say, and I mean to cut you off, Julio, but if you've never seen Revolutionary Road, you you should see it at least once. It's an amazing movie. Kate Winslet in particular is just fucking fire in that movie. And I know we have two listeners that don't like that movie. <laughs> so I know Eddie. Who's the other one? Brandon Curtis. Oh, he doesn't like it either? No. God damn it. They can both go fuck themselves. <laughs> um. It's relevant, too, because, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between Marriage Story and Revolutionary Road. Such is my understanding. Yeah. I mean, completely different stories, but there's just basically the idea of a couple that at one at one point they loved each other. And then now they're at a point where it's just not working out and how they handle it. It's- oh, and I completely forgot. I remembered Leo has his, like, side piece. Mm-hmm. I forgot, like, he just gets her drunk. To fuck her. Jesus. I didn't remember that. Either. Yeah. So watching that fold out, it was just kind of like, you know, when you start the movie that you think you remember smiling and then, you know, the Saturday Night Fever. Oh, no. This isn't what I remember at all. You started missing the chilies. <laughs> yeah, <I was laughs> Reaching like, for chips that are not there. Where are my chicken crispers? <laughs> my plug. Last night, I, I don't know what I would have plugged if I hadn't gone to uh, the Bass Theater last night, but... Uh, I watched this show called Come From Away, and I knew nothing about it. All I knew was the title. I didn't even... They handed me a program, and I just put it away. I didn't... I, I was like, let's, let's go into this cold, because it's so rare. Especially if you're going to see something on stage. Usually, it's like a big show that you already knew about, right? I know what Le Mis is about. I know what... Uh, I mean, the next one they're showing is like Aladdin. and But this, I had no idea. So... But you might know this story, Alex. I don't know, because I was telling uh, Kelly about it, and she recognized it, I guess, sometime after... Uh, no, sometime. Right when 9-11 happened, and mm. basically a whole bunch of planes had to be redirected because they... You know, the American airspace... Oh, is that would, the one that's like... What, what country is it in? Canada. Yes. A whole bunch of planes get redirected to Canada and they land on this little town. And they basically for five days, the town just embraces all these people from all over the world. And uh, and then, you know, after five days, they have to go back to the States. But it's five days that are basically the five days after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of shit going on. Uncertainty and whatnot. Yeah. And so they made a musical about that. And I had no idea what I was in for. It, it opens and you're just introducing the town in a song and whatever. And then they talk about planes landing. And I'd heard that story, but a long time ago, I had no idea that there was a musical about it and anything. So about 25, 30 minutes in, they finally get to the point where uh, they actually say it out loud. And they have a, a precedent that sounds a little bit like Bush giving a message. And basically, that's when it clicks. Oh, it's 9-11. And that's when it clicked for me. Um, it's not like the show was designed for that. I'm sure the show is designed for you to go in knowing that it's 9-11 from the beginning. Yeah. But to me, I was kind of like cold on the show. I was like, I don't get it. It's just all about these quirky Canadians being quirky. And 
And then the moment that it's revealed that this is happening on 9-11, that's when I perked up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> this matters. <laughs> and and then the show gets, obviously, a lot more powerful as it goes on because uh, it's just people's reactions, the, the Americans' reactions to 9-11 and reactions from other people in the world. And just the fact that this Canadian town, by all accounts, because it's based on a true story, they just went out of their way to embrace everybody at this tough time. Mm-hmm. And people opened their houses. They just they fed them. They gave them phones. They did everything they could to make them. And they couldn't leave. The thing is, the planes couldn't leave right away because uh, the American airspace was still restricted until they sorted things out. Mm-hmm. So they were stuck there. And they were, all the Americans, were desperate to get back to the States. So it was. it's such a cool story it's uh i mean i I love musicals so the musical numbers are great and uh, something that really struck me was that it moves so fast that there's really no pause at the end of the songs Mm -hmm. where usually people would clap so i think that it ends uh, they play the first song you clap and then it just there's no pause for maybe an hour 45 uh, or, or maybe even 70 minutes and so when there was another pause at the end of a big number the entire theater who had been just containing <laughs> their applause and their enthusiasm <laughs> finally like erupted uh, an applause and then all the way till the end uh, it was really really cool so nice. I would say obviously the soundtrack is on Spotify or not the soundtrack there what do you call it the the original Broadway cast recording is on Spotify if you go on YouTube you can look up clips uh, from when they were at the Tonys and when they were on uh other uh, other stage awards events. There's a bunch of them from the uh, British cast, but it's, it's really cool. Uh, it's not a super complicated story, so you can, I think in whatever you enjoy, whatever you find online, you can enjoy it separate from everything else. But then, of course, it's always better if you just see the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah, if Come From Away is playing anywhere near you, I would say just go and enjoy it. Cool. We'll awesome. cry a little. Oh, yeah. It's a horribly emotional thing. Yeah, yeah. It's... Having lived through that too, that's, e- I mean, uh, I always like to use the phrase opposite side of the coin um, or other side of the coin, what have you. Uh, the other side of the coin of what I talked about with T2 of living through something as big as that mm-hmm. and like something positive, without question, the most traumatic thing I've lived through is September 11th, like in my lifetime, uh, my generation, you know, any uh, hyperbole you can say. And so it's cool to see that there are finally things that can be made from that that accent what good in humanity kind of came from it regardless it's it's fucking awful yeah nearly four thousand people died in one day for no reason anyway that wraps up episode 103 and we're getting up there it was like after the ufc passed the ufc 100 like for the first like probably like until like 130 i hadn't accepted that we were past 100 (laughs) so that's every time now until we get to about the 130 mark i'm gonna keep thinking that way but uh on deck is blue velvet it's gonna be a slightly different movie than michael Uh, i'm looking forward to it though but for now that's gonna do it for the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong and we will catch you next time with mr david lynch
Edith. Edith Bunker. Achie. That's... <laughs> sorry. You Hula, know, there's, there's Hula a, is looking at me with the blankest of stares no, right no, now. No, no, no. I know who she is. There is a... This, this is probably going to go at the very end of the episode, but there is that episode... I mean, one of those, like, VH1's countdowns or whatever, mm-hmm. where they're saying, like, the most disturbing TV episodes of family shows. Mm-hmm. And there's one where it's basically a home invasion episode. It's just her and some dude that breaks into the house. Oh, yeah. And have you seen it? Yeah. That's how I remember that woman. <laughs> from, from I haven't even seen the episode, but I just I remember the clips. Yeah, her whole shtick on that show was how annoying her voice was and how screechily she could sing yeah that was not the point in that episode that episode was just that serious it's a very special episode of uh all in the family 